0: The House and Senate both returned today and will be in session through Thursday. Last week in the House, the House came back to work on Tuesday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 2377, the Federal Extreme Risk Protection Order Act, and H.R. 7910, the Protecting Our Kids Act. Two Democrats crossed party lines to vote against the rule, but otherwise it was a straight party line vote. Then the House began voting on the individual constituent parts of H.R. 7910, the omnibus gun control bill we talked about last week. There are seven different titles in the bill. Each was passed. On final passage, those in favor outnumbered those opposed by 223 to 204, with five Republicans voting aye and two Democrats voting nay. Then the House took up and passed nine more bills under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R. 2377, the Federal Extreme Risk Protection Order Act, and then they were done. This week in the House, they'll come back to work today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to consider five bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the House will consider H.R. 2773, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act of 2022, H.R. 2543, the Financial Services, Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Economic Justice Act. And H.R. 7606, the Lower Food and Fuel Costs Act. I'm going to insert a brief editorial comment here. Thank goodness we have a Senate. So that crazy H.R. 2543, the Financial Services, Racial Equity, Inclusion, and Economic Justice Act will not become law. This bill would require the Federal Reserve Board of Governors to do just what you think it would do based on the title. And that's just crazy. Specifically, the text says that the Federal Reserve Act is amended to insert a new duty to minimize and eliminate racial disparities with respect to employment, income, wealth and access to affordable credit, including actions in carrying out monetary policy, regulation and supervision, implementation of the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, enforcement of fair lending laws and community development functions. And then it requires regular reports to the Congress on the Fed's progress on those fronts. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Monday and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Alex Wagner to be an assistant secretary of the Air Force. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm Wagner to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on H.R. 3967, the Honoring Our PACT Act of 2021. PACT is an acronym for Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics. This is a bill to address the health care needs of military veterans who were exposed to toxic substances over the years in certain situations and locations. The Senate then voted to confirm the nomination of Shavonda J. Jacobs Young to be Undersecretary of Agriculture. Kenneth L. Weinstein to be Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis at the Department of Homeland Security, and Shalanda H. Baker to be Director of the Office of Minority Economic Impact at the Department of Energy. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to reject Lisa M. Gomez to be an Assistant Secretary of Labor. The vote was tied at 50-50, but Vice President Harris was not present to cast a tie-breaking vote. So Majority Leader Chuck Schumer switched his vote from aye to nay so that he could later enter a motion to reconsider and bring the nomination back to the floor when the vice president is in the Senate chamber to cast the necessary tie-breaking vote. Then the Senate voted to confirm Nina Morrison to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York, Todd M. Harper to be a member of the National Credit Union Administration, and Amy Lloyd to be an Assistant Secretary of Education for Career, Technical, and Adult Education. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm Robert Stephen Hewell to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California and Samuel R. Bagenstos to be General Counsel at the Department of Health and Human Services. Then by voice vote, the Senate confirmed the following people to the following positions. Dana Catherine Bilyeu to be a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board for a term expiring October 11, 2023. Leona M. Bridges to be a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board for a term expiring October 11, 2023. Stacy Olivares to be a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board for a term expiring September 25, 2024. Michael F. Gerber to be a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board for a term expiring September 25, 2022. And the same Michael F. Gerber to be a member of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board for a term expiring September 25, 2026. And then they were done. This week in the Senate, they'll return today with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on cloture on the Tester Substitute Amendment numbered 5051 to H.R. 3967, the Honoring Our Pact Act of 2021. Now to COVID mandates. Last Friday, the Biden administration announced it was ending the requirement that international air travelers test negative for COVID-19 before entering the United States. Appropriately for an administration that leaks as badly as does the Biden administration, the official announcement was made by a deputy White House press secretary who tweeted the declaration on top of a CNN story that broke the news. The move went into effect at midnight last night. The airline industry has been lobbying the Biden administration for months to get this travel restriction lifted. Now to inflation. On Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the Department of Labor released the inflation figures for May, and they weren't good. Prices surged in the month of May, up 1% from a month earlier and up 8.6% from the same time a year ago, representing the worst inflation in 41 years. Worse, the monthly increase was more rapid than economists had predicted and tripled the pace measured last month, meaning inflation isn't just high, it's accelerating. On Saturday, the average price of a gallon of gasoline in the United States topped $5, an all-time high. Energy costs rose by 3.9% just between April and May. Overall, energy prices are up by 35% over the last year, according to the BLS report released Friday. The Fed was already expected to raise interest rates by half a point at its meeting this week and another half a point at its meeting in July. Based on these new inflation numbers, economists wouldn't be surprised to see the Fed raise rates another half point in September. Now to Rick Scott's plan. Last month, we hosted Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott on our monthly webinar. He shared with us his thoughts on the upcoming midterm election. He's the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, this cycle, chosen by his colleagues to oversee the effort to elect Republicans to the U.S. Senate in 2022. And he wanted to talk in addition about his own policy agenda, which he called his plan to rescue America. One of the proposed policy planks in his agenda proved to be somewhat controversial. He said all Americans should pay some amount of federal income tax, quote, to have skin in the game, even if a small amount, unquote. The proposed policy plank went into no further detail and did not propose a minimum tax rate or amount. But it was enough for President Biden and his Democrat allies to latch onto as a means to try to bash all Republicans falsely for wanting to raise taxes on the half of American taxpayers who don't currently pay any federal income tax. On Thursday of last week, Scott, responded by amending his Rescue America tax plan. Gone is the suggestion that all Americans should pay federal income tax, replaced by a call to make the 2017 tax cuts permanent and to require a supermajority in both houses of Congress to raise taxes or fees. And just to make sure President Biden gets it, the text on the web page hosting the revised tax plan begins with this in all caps. Note for President Biden, this plan cuts taxes. Nothing in this plan has ever or will ever advocate or propose any tax increases at all, end quote. Now to the leak of the Dobbs draft ruling fallout, Supreme Court assassination attempt edition. On the morning of Wednesday, March 4, 2020, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in an abortion case from Louisiana New York Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer, then still the minority leader in the United States Senate, appeared at a rally outside the Supreme Court where pro-abortion extremists had gathered. Screaming to be heard, even though he was speaking into a bank of microphones, Schumer called out two justices by name. Quote, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hits you if you go forward with these awful decisions, end quote. The rebukes came fast and furious, and most notably from the chief justice himself, who said, quote, justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter, end quote. Precisely 118 Wednesdays later, very early on the morning of June 8, 2022, a California man with a Glock 17 pistol, two magazines of ammunition, a knife, a crowbar and a screwdriver was arrested outside the Maryland home of Supreme Court Justice Robert Kavanaugh. The man had traveled from California and gone to Kavanaugh's home, he told authorities, with plans to kill Kavanaugh and then kill himself. Nicholas John Roski, 26 years old, was charged with attempted murder of a Supreme Court justice. According to an affidavit filed in federal court, Roski was upset by the leaked draft opinion authored by Justice Samuel Alito, indicating that the court is ready to overturn the 49-year-old ruling in Roe v. Wade. In addition, said the affidavit, Roski was upset by the recent shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Justice Kavanaugh is still waiting for an apology from Senator Schumer. And the Supreme Court Policy, I'm sorry, Police Parity Act, a bill to provide police protection to immediate family members of Supreme Court justices and other officers of the court, offered just days after the leak of that draft ruling in the Dobbs case, a bill that passed the Senate unanimously on May 9th, still languishes in the House, where Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Hoyer have yet to schedule it for floor action. Attorney General Merrick Garland, who still refuses to enforce federal law that prohibits protesting outside the home of a sitting Supreme Court justice, and Pelosi and Hoyer, who even after the assassination attempt against the sitting Supreme Court justice failed to move expeditiously to pass the bill providing enhanced security for Supreme Court justices, are doing something outrageous. They're clearly trying to pressure the justices to reverse themselves, on the Roe v. Wade question. It's truly extraordinary. And while we're at it, you can throw Leader Schumer into that bunch too for his comments outside the Supreme Court two years ago. Of course, he wasn't actually trying to threaten or encourage violence against Supreme Court justices. That goes without saying. But what he was trying to do is just as alien to the system our founders created. He was trying to bring political pressure to bear on justices who were sitting in judgment of a case that had strong political implications. And that's just as wrong. And if you were looking for one more reason to dislike Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the self-described socialist, gave you one last Thursday, a day after news of the threat against Kavanaugh's life spread throughout the Capitol. As Congress left town, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy planned to try to push through that bill providing for enhanced security for Supreme Court Justices with a unanimous consent request. Ocasio-Cortez was having none of it. She posted a video on her Instagram page of herself running up the steps to the Capitol so she could block McCarthy's unanimous consent request. Oh, we can pass protections for us here, for us and here easily, right? She said. But we can't pass protections for everyday people? I think not, she said. I'm going to need a roll call vote on that. Of course, It wasn't McCarthy who was denying her a roll call vote. It was Pelosi and Hoyer who had denied her a roll call vote since that bill passed the Senate and landed in the House more than a month ago. Now to January 6th committee action. Last Thursday evening, the January 6th committee held its first public hearing. I watched it so you wouldn't have to. I was unimpressed, and I think it's fair to say most of the country was, too. First, let's talk numbers, because moving numbers is what politics is all about. And let's make no mistake, the January 6th committee exercise is about nothing if it's not about politics. According to the Nielsen ratings numbers that were reported in the aftermath, about 19 million people watched the hearing despite the fact that it received wall-to-wall coverage. Three of the four major broadcast networks, ABC, CBS and NBC, and two of the cable networks, MSNBC and CNN, carried it live. So did Fox Business. ABC led the way with about four and a half million viewers, followed by NBC with about three point three million and CBS with another three point three million. That's about 11 million viewers on the broadcast networks in prime time. To put that in context. The regular evening news broadcasts on those three networks combined for a viewing audience of between 18 and 20 million viewers on a typical evening. But those news broadcasts don't air in prime time. For more context, about 38 million people tuned in for President Biden's last State of the Union address. On the other hand, MSNBC had 4.2 million viewers and CNN about 2.6 million. Those are huge numbers for those two liberal cable outlets, so executives there were quite happy, I'm sure. Second, let's talk talk content. Let me just sum it up this way. I was put to sleep, literally. I fell asleep toward the end of Congresswoman Liz Cheney's 35-minute-long opening statement. I had to rewind my DVR and watch it again to make sure I hadn't missed anything significant. I hadn't. No one who hadn't already made up his or her mind was swayed by what they viewed. And is there anybody in this country who hasn't already made up his or her mind about what happened on January 6th? Nevertheless, the committee will hold more public hearings this week. It will hold hearings today, beginning a few hours ago, Wednesday and Thursday. Next week, it will hold a hearing on Tuesday. The committee reportedly has plans for two more hearings beyond that, but no date has been set yet. And finally, to gun control. On Wednesday of last week, as discussed briefly earlier, the House took up and passed H.R. 7910, the Protecting Our Kids Act. That omnibus gun control legislation contained the latest iteration of the extreme liberals wish list on gun control. Just about every Democrat in the House was overjoyed at the chance to vote for it, while just about every Republican in the House was happy for the chance to vote against it. It will go absolutely nowhere in the Senate. On Sunday morning, that is yesterday morning, a bipartisan group of 20 senators, 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, announced they had come to agreement on what they called a framework for modest legislation aimed at hardening school security, increasing funding for mental health, Expanding background checks to include an examination of the juvenile records of gun buyers under the age of 21, and incentivizing states to enact their own red flag laws. Here's what is not in the framework. Raising the age of purchase for a so-called assault weapon to 21, banning high-capacity magazines, however those might be defined, banning the manufacture, sale, or possession of new bump stocks amending the definition of ghost guns to require background checks on all sales, among other things. Here's what else is not in the framework, a ban on semi-automatic rifles, as both President Biden and Speaker Pelosi have demanded. Republicans stress that what they have agreed to is merely a framework and insist they reserve the right to leave the agreement if the legislative text doesn't match what they thought they were agreeing to. The 10 Republicans who signed on to the framework are John Cornyn of Texas, Tom Tillis, of North Carolina, Roy Blunt of Missouri, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. Burr, Blunt, Portman, and Toomey are all retiring at the end of the current Congress. Next up, we'll be translating the language of the framework into legislative text. That process will take several days at the very least. Connecticut's Connecticut Democrat Senator Chris Murphy, who has taken the lead on these negotiations for the Democrats, is already pushing Majority Leader to schedule a floor vote before the end of next week when the Senate will leave for a two-week Fourth of July recess. That's our Washington report for this week.